Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky show as I speak. It's Thursday. Oh, good God. January 6th. Wow. I didn't even think about the significance of that until I read the date. Thursday, January 6th. This time uh, a year ago, uh, insurrectionists had overtaken the U.S. Capitol. They loved Donald Trump so much. They wanted to do whatever they could to make sure he remained our president forever and ever. Uh, but that's not something we're going to talk about today at all. <laughs> Although with my guests, knowing our ability to talk about anything at any time on any tangent, it may come up. I got a list of like 10 things I want to talk to this guest about. Uh, but the first one relates to a headline I'll read, uh, which will be very apropos to what we're going to talk about, at least at the beginning. What's Gone Wrong at Chicago's Last Black-Owned Bank? A great story in ProPublica. I urge everybody to uh, check it out. Uh, and uh, my distinguished guest uh, co-wrote the story, and so I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. So take it away, distinguished guest. Hi, I am Ben's distinguished guest. My name is Mick Dumkey. I am a reporter at ProPublica and a longtime friend, uh, frequent collaborator of one Ben Jarofsky's. Yes. Of one Ben Jarofsky. I don't know why I put the possessive on you there, Ben. <laughs> ben Jarofsky's. Hi, Ben Jarofsky's. Um, oh, yeah, ben, ben and I, we go back a ways. So it's good to be back here on the show. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for it's having me. It's been too long. Uh, it's been too long. and uh, But as everybody knows, uh, mixed better half, as they say. Uh, Ramana Hussein is a regular on this show. Uh, and one of the great features when Ramana comes on is that moment in every uh, Ramana Hussein show where we officially throw Mick Dumkey under the bus. And he's such a good sport. <laughs> he never he never holds it against either one of us. Uh, so I, I mean, You know, I got to be good for something. If I'm good for uh, <laughs> fodder for the Ben Jarofsky show, so be it. Yeah, my, my questionable tastes in... Uh, <laughs> Music uh, and and viewing, um, 
sports. Uh, it's all fair game. So <laughs> it's all fair game. And sometimes I swear to God, ladies and gentlemen, so, you know, everything's uh, virtual now. Uh, we, we, uh, we're never going back to a studio. So it's all these like zoom meetings or they're not really zoom meetings. Zencaster and his, whatever. It doesn't matter what the, the name of the product is. The point is every now and then I'll hear Mick in the background protesting something like, I don't know if you know that. Man. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> I try to stay away when I hear that there is, there is uh, you know, a show being made um, elsewhere in our condo. I try to stay out of it, but every so often I just simply cannot hold back. So yeah, that is true. All right, let's get down to business. What's gone wrong at Chicago's last black-owned bank? And something you should know about Mick Dumkey, uh, he still does long, what do they call it? Long-form narratives. Uh, we used to, I used to do them all the time at The Reader. We, Mick and I did a bunch of them together, as he was uh, saying uh, for a while. We were the Lennon and McCartney of The Reader. And I'm not sure who was Lennon, who was McCartney. That was a, a point of dispute. <laughs> who had the greasier Mick? hair? Yeah, at that time. <laughs> Yeah, see what the anyway, that that's a, an allusion to one of Ben's recent columns about is, uh, yeah, the get back documentary. But yeah, anyway, filled with yeah. greasy hair. Uh, and uh, this is a great story. Uh, and I have a list of things that it gets at uh, Mick, and I am now going to highlight them, or we're going to take it from there. But it gets at the whole issue of uh, the failure of banking and capitalism. What is a uh, black owned bank? And um, the starvation of the black community for investment in general, uh, and redlining by a, by any—it's just another. I could argue it's another form of redlining, uh, not having investment in certain whole chunks of Chicago, uh, and you kind of symbolized it very effectively uh, in this story, this narrative about this one black-owned bank and its struggles. So great job to you. Uh, and your and your current partners in crime. So why don't you start out by giving a shout out uh, to your two collaborators, and then take it from there and explain to uh, listeners, Mick, exactly uh, what the thesis and uh, the focus of your story was. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Um, you're right. I had uh, two of my colleagues at ProPublica who work with me on this story, uh, not counting editors, of course, but uh, uh, reporters uh, Haru Kareen and Miriam. Elba also uh, worked with me. And uh, you're right. We took a deep dive looking at this one small bank that is in the Bronzeville neighborhood on Chicago's South Side. And I think you articulated it just, uh, that's just what we were hoping for. We thought that um, by looking at the struggles this bank continues to go through, that it really was an apt illustration for so many issues about racism in our economy. Um, disinvestment in black neighborhoods in cities around the country, including, of course, Chicago, uh, the struggle for uh, black-owned and black-led businesses to survive in, in an environment of uh, hyper-consolidation um, in banking, just like it is in every other kind of business right now, um, and you know how customers, at the end of the day, um, end up being the ones who customers and, and citizens of the neighborhoods um, affected be, ends up being the ones who really uh, bear the brunt of everything that's going on. And, and within that, I think there was, a um, we tried to tell, uh, well, we came upon and tried to relate to our audience um, 
that there was kind of a twisting, turning saga behind this bank that I thought was pretty interesting in its own right. And talk a little bit about that twisting, turning saga. Well, I will start by saying I got a call um, last year, many months ago now, from someone who said that customers of this bank were receiving notices that they were uh, their they were going to lose their properties. Their properties were going to go into foreclosure, even though they thought they were up on their mortgage payments. And needless to say, this was frightening to them. Um, these by and large are people who are um, not well off. They're, they're not necessarily poor, but they're, you know, they're people like you and me and so many others out there listening who work hard at their jobs and, uh, invested a lot of their earnings into their homes and um, very frightening experience to have a letter show up from a company they've never heard of saying all of a sudden they're behind in their payments and it could result in foreclosure. Um, So I started to look into it. I did not find that people had lost their homes, at least not yet, but I found a very complicated saga. This company that had sent them, lawyers had sent them this letter on behalf of a company named York Properties, which turned out to be uh, started by the same people who owned this small bank, GN Bank, um, in the Bronzeville neighborhood. And GN Bank happens to be the last uh, bank in the city of Chicago that, um, last bank actually in this whole state of Illinois. Uh, that is has majority of its ownership is uh, our our people are you know black people in this case it's a family originally from Ghana uh, that owns this bank um, at one point in time Chicago alone had more than half a dozen black owned banks but the number has dwindled down to one here and the broader context for this Ben is um, over the last twenty years. The same thing has happened around the country. There were once uh, more than 40 Black-owned banks in the year 2001, and as we speak now, there's uh, just 16. So even in the time since we started working on this story, another one has uh, has been absorbed by a, a, another a, a different bank. So there's just 16 uh, Black-owned banks in the entire United States, just 16. So... Um, and this this bank is struggling to to keep going. They're under what's called a consent order from uh, federal regulators. That's essentially a, an agreement that's forced upon them that they have to do certain things to try to fix the bank's finances. And there are restrictions and things that they um, are able to do. Um, it's it's sort of like meant to uh, put them on a corrective path. It's at a path back to health, but at the same time because it limits the kind of activities they do, it's actually harder for the bank uh, to make money under these circumstances. So it's facing a a troubled path um, to continue to survive at this point. And what are some of the factors that are leading uh, Black-owned banks uh, to either go out of business or sell uh, to a, a larger institution? Well, it's the same thing that's happening in a lot of other sectors of our economy where just uh, the big boys, and I guess in some instances the big girls, are swallowing smaller players. And so this is happening across banking. There used to be a lot more 
uh, smaller community kind of banks. Um, I don't know about you, but I have a soft spot for It's a Wonderful Life. We usually turn it on sometime around the holidays. So uh, George Bailey, of course, uh, you know, ends up running, uh, as his father did before him, the local uh, building and loan. Um, and this institution we're talking about in Chicago, GN Bank, was formerly called uh, Illinois Service Federal Savings and Loan. So it was that very type of institution. It was uh, rooted in the community, um, formed for the express purpose of helping people buy homes and helping small businesses, you know, get loans that that enable them to, uh, you know, to stay alive or to grow. Um, so what's happened with black banking generally is the same thing that's happened to so many other businesses in small communities and in uh, particularly in predominantly black areas around the country, they've just been squeezed. They've been squeezed to death. And things are, um, of course, more complicated. So let's just talk about Chicago. Uh, everyone listening undoubtedly knows something about the history of segregation in Chicago. So a lot of these banks were formed for the very reason that uh, white-owned banks, the, the bigger players, and even some of the smaller uh, white-owned players wouldn't lend. They wouldn't issue loans in black neighborhoods for a long time, or they would on a very limited uh, basis. And so you saw um, throughout you know, the, uh, the 1900s, you saw uh, leaders in the black community and business uh, people forming their own institutions to try to serve, uh, you know, themselves, their neighbors, the businesses, people wanted to buy homes there. But the margins for success have always been more narrow in these communities for a number of reasons, um, you know, that, that others have indexed very well. But just think of it this way. Um, every time, uh, you know, housing values drop around the country, they drop even more in the black community, houses, uh, properties tend to be appraised at lower levels if they're in a zip code that's predominantly black. Um, so I could go on and on, but just the, the margins for being able to make a profit and to survive for any business and including, um, you know, the, the business of banking, issuing home loans, small business loans is very difficult. So these banks have struggled to survive along the way. Um, one good thing is that some of the big banks, of course, do issue loans in these neighborhoods, but they still do it at a fraction of the rate they do in more affluent areas and in white areas. And um, while there is more access to loans, to financial services in uh, you know black communities in Chicago, for instance, uh, it still doesn't compare with what you get, like, say, on the north side. So for all these reasons... Uh, this is why these banks were formed in the first place to, uh, in response to some of these needs, but it's also exactly why so many of them are in trouble or have simply shut their doors. And is there also an instance where, uh, the owners of the bank get an offer that's just too good for them, uh, to refuse? Absolutely. There is a, um, there used to be, uh, an institution called, uh, they either get an offer that's, that they can't refuse or, it's the only solution to keep that particular um, like bank location open. So there used to be, uh, 
institution called the Community Bank of Lawndale on the west side of Chicago. And it got into some trouble, went through some ownership changes for a while. Um, a pastor from uh, the western suburbs and his congregation basically put their money together to acquire the bank and they just couldn't make a go of it. Um, the housing collapse hit. And a lot of these banks didn't make it through the aftermath of the 20, 2008 financial meltdown. And there was sort of a lag effect. Even if they made it through 2008, 2009, 2010, they ended up getting in trouble you know, a few years after that. So that bank ended up um, eventually being swallowed by a bank called Liberty that's out of New Orleans. So it is black owned, but the location in Lawndale no longer exists. There is one branch, I think, in Forest Park in the West Suburbs. But that's exactly an example of that, Ben. They they couldn't, the previous owners couldn't make a go of it. Their assets were essentially, um, they were ordered to shut down essentially by regulators and their assets were eventually taken over by another institution. Um, in this case, the good news if uh, for those who wanted to keep their money in a Black-owned institution um, that was who took over, you know, the community bank of Lawndale. But in most cases, that's not what happens because there's so few of those, uh, so few black-owned banks left. Uh, and there's, I suppose, I can think of two reasons why somebody would want to keep his or her money in a black-owned bank. One is just to support uh, black-owned businesses in general as a principle, as a way of life. Uh, and uh, the other is the the notion that if it's black-owned, uh, they may be what uh, they may treat you better if you're a black uh, consumer. Uh, do you is there any evidence that you've discovered, Mick, in your research and your reporting and your uh, just reading about this stuff that that's absolutely actually the case uh, that let's say a black owned bank might be more willing to lend money uh, to a, a black a mortgage seeker, uh, more be tolerant of somebody if they're st like George Bailey was more tolerant. That's, you know, that's what got <laughs> yeah, him in I trouble. Go ahead. Yeah, it is what got him in trouble. And it's probably what got a lot of these banks in trouble, to be honest with you, um, is that, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. What I was told about this bank in particular, both from longtime customers, um, former leaders of the bank is that for many decades, um, current incarnation or its previous name and leadership, they essentially had two kinds of customers. There were people who, just like you said, they wanted to make sure that they were depositing money um, in an institution that was going to issue loans in their community. They wanted to make sure that money was recirculated in the black community and that it was going to be used to you know, help other people buy homes or to open businesses. Um, so that was very important to them. There's another group of people who didn't have other options. They, um, you know, didn't have a, a financial history that was going to give them a, cr a good credit score. They weren't going to be able to walk into, say, Chase or some big bank necessarily and um, go through, you know, kind of the the process that they go through there that kind of basically mechanical process. They just weren't going to, they weren't going to be able to qualify, but they could go to the smaller institution where, um, you know, people knew the, the blocks that, that some of the, uh, the mortgage seekers lit where they lived, they just knew the area better. And so there was a little bit more of an interpersonal relationship with people. Um, now I think 
that is, to your point, that is also what got them in trouble. When the housing collapse hit, I mean, a bank like, as it was called, Illinois Service Federal was just absolutely slammed. Um, People fell behind on their mortgage payments. And as the former leader of the bank described to me, they tried to work out deals with people just like George Bailey did. You know, he said, listen, our people were not giving up on their homes. This is what a lot of, all that a lot of them had. This is where they, the only chance they had to acquire wealth and kind of move up the economic ladder. So they weren't going to walk away from them, but in some instances they needed time. They needed a little flexibility. Um, but the problem, there, there are problems with that. It's, it's a nice thing when that works out, but um, at a certain point in time, the bank, you know, it does have to report its numbers to state regulators or federal regulators. And when it gets to a certain point, as the regulators have described to me, they are required to go in. So if a bank has too many delinquent loans on its books, if its uh, level of capital, which is sort of the money you know, that its investors or its owners put into the bank, when that starts to shrink to a certain level, regulators are required to do something. They can't just let the bank go toward oblivion and, you know, risk that everyone's going to lose their money or that um, taxpayers are going to have a bigger bill and bailing out the bank eventually. So there's a real tension here between trying to keep banks open and also make sure that they're operating safely. And when you're looking at a small bank like this, the interpersonal touch, the the ties it has to the community. That's why this bank existed. Um, but that's also why the bank ended up getting in tr- into trouble and was going to have a hard time climbing out of it and still is having a hard time climbing out of the hole that it got into. You know, uh, I recall a time, uh, Mick, just listening to you, you tell those stories about when I first moved to Chicago, there was a bank in South Shore. And um, it's out of business now, uh, South Shore Bank. I don't know if you were around for that at all. It wasn't black-owned. Yeah, Shore, Shore Bank, yeah. Shore Bank, yeah. And it wasn't a, a technically a black-owned bank, but uh, there was a, the group of people who owned it and created it. It was an integrated bunch, which is really rare for Chicago. Uh, and they had uh, connections to the civil rights movement. But I remember uh, when I did stories about them or interviewed them, and it was always they made it clear that they were capitalists. They weren't lefties like me. And, uh, right. They wanted you know, to make money. Yeah. Yes. They wanted to make money. And, uh, y- you know, <laughs> I'm laughing cause I can recall these conversations, you lefties. And, but the, the point is Mick, they believed that capitalism could help black communities in Chicago. And, and there's there's groups of, uh, they used to be called Jack Kemp Republicans. I don't know if they exist anymore who would preach this. Uh, I don't, you know, I think, well, Jack Kemp himself was a congressman. He died, but I'm not sure there's anybody who's carrying on the Jack Kemp legacy for whatever it's worth, who would say that all we need is more capitalism uh, in black communities and poor neighborhoods in general, and they will thrive. I, and people would tell me this. And for a while, I almost kind of sort of believed it. And now, Mick, I just see you talk about uh, the housing crisis of 2000. Uh, what was it in 2008, 2007? We may be heading into another one. Uh, you know, I fear that there's a housing bubble, I think. Um, so 
what I'm getting at is, do you think that this is a sign that capitalism has its limitations when up, when up, when up against just racism, segregation, uh, just uh, greed, you know, the, on the part of the people who run the banks? Your thoughts. Right. No, it's a great question. I mean, well, clearly, um, clearly capitalism as it has been employed in a city like Chicago has um, not kept everyone, you know, has not addressed inequities. That's, that's clear. Okay. So is there a solution via capitalism to uh, try to bring more investment into neighborhoods that have been starved of it for far too long? Um, I hope so, because I think that's, you know, it's the only game we see right now being played. So, um, I think there's a broader philosophical question, but I can tell you about what has actually happened. And in, um, in, in this case, I think, uh, well, I'm kind of losing my train of thought here. So I, I don't know about the big overarching question, Ben, about whether capitalism is up to the job. Um, but I would make this point is that, you know, income levels tend to be lower, as we know, um, in a lot of black neighborhoods in Chicago and around the country. That's just a statistical fact. But that doesn't mean that there is no money in these communities. That doesn't mean that there is no uh, economy or capitalism, quite the opposite. I actually have come to think from this bank story and some other work I've done over the last couple of years that, you know, one of the, the, the forms of madness that comes out of racism is the fact that so many people through the decades have passed up the chance to make money in these communities, um, because they wrote them off, uh, because they were black. Um, people who did see an opportunity there often went in as exploiters rather than as uh, members of the community or partners with the community. So this is a whole other discussion, but you know, a lot has been written about uh, contract sales um, through real estate. So when banks wouldn't give traditional mortgages in, say, the 50s and 60s, um, other people went in and they arranged these other kinds of transactions where that ended up being grossly unfair to people trying to buy homes. And a lot of them couldn't keep up with these ballooning payments. They ended up losing everything they put into it. Um, there's some really fine work that's been uh, done on that. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote a great story a few years ago on it. Um, great piece of journalism. Beryl Satter, whose family, uh, you know, whose father was a landlord on the West Side, wrote an incredible book um, family properties a few years about that. So this stuff gets really deep and, and kind of complicated, but I think something to remember is that, um, you know, since we're operating currently within a capitalist system in this country, uh, you know, businesses have an opportunity to make money in all different communities. There is money in these neighborhoods and, uh, banks and other businesses, um, if they had the will, they could find a way uh, to, as the old saying goes, uh, both do well and do good uh, at the same time. 
Yeah, I hear you. By the way, shout out to Beryl Satter, uh, a graduate of Evanston Township High School. All the great ones went to Evanston Township High School. Like, uh, I just had <laughs> to go down. It's that funny path. because, yeah, well, you know, uh, the, the aforementioned Romana, my uh, my spouse and your regular guest, uh, would claim that everything goes through uh, Lincolnwood, <laughs> Illinois, and uh, uh, Niles West High School. So yes. you guys can have your. <laughs> We, your we have that urban debate on your next conversation. We, we do. We have that. We have that conversation. Whenever I say something nice about Evanston, she comes right back. Well, did you know? And then it's like some <laughs> some, some Niles West grad. And uh, I I, uh, I struggle with this. Uh, I read Coates' essay, uh, and I read the Satter book, and uh, I, I struggle with this, Mick, because I I do I understand. Uh, the lure of capitalism. I am drawn to it. Uh, I'm, I'm always trying to curb my urge for gambling, which is like going to be a lifelong struggle of mine. Uh, so I get it. I understand it. Uh, and yet, I guess it's a greater conversation for another time. I just feel that racism overwhelms capitalism. And I, I get your point. I know there's money to be made uh in in black communities um there would be money all throughout the 50s legitimate bank loans you wouldn't have to go to the contract buyer league you know that uh that's right yeah it just but uh, it, the great john thompson i know i know i've been talking to you about his book uh the former georgetown coach and he uh, he wrote his autobiography came out last year and i found it profound on many levels but one level he pointed out he said that Racism is so strong in this country uh, in so many ways, in so many aspects, that there's only so far white people can go before they have to retreat. And he was talking in terms of basketball, which he was talking about Red Auerbach, who this legendary coach of the Boston Celtics, uh, who was the first coach to field an all-black team at one point. But even Red Auerbach, as powerful as he was, could not, according to John Thompson, uh, have more than, I think it was six black guys on his team in the early 60s. He had to have like six white guys on the bench. And so there was always black guys who couldn't make the team because they needed to fit that quota of white guys. And so what John Thompson's point was, Red did everything he could, but there was only so far he could go. Do you follow me, Mick? So when I read these stories yeah, about- it's like a version of, It's like a version of the tipping point. Right. Like how at what point in time, you know, uh, there may be lots of people who like the fact they have a black family who lives down the, the street. But at what point in time are there too many where they're getting uncomfortable and they want to leave? And and you can expand that uh, argument or that phenomenon, I should say, to everything, including basketball, the makeup of a basketball team. Right. I mean, so. Yeah, I, I hear what he's saying. No, but and he's beyond that. He was saying that there's only so even Red Auerbach can only go so far, and then there would be a backlash, and he would have to back off. And uh, so I I just wonder in general if if capitalism is the tool uh, to deal with the kind of inequities uh, that we're addressing here, uh, Mick. So where what is the before I move you on to other matters? Uh, what's the status right now of of the bank? Well, 
there's a whole, I, I hope people are interested will check out the story. I don't mean to uh, be self-promoting, but I'll self-promote for a second. Check out the story because there are some twists and turns in this tale. And very quickly, I will say that, um, you know, through our reporting, we realized that a bit, uh, just the huge role that bank regulators play in everything we're talking about in terms of um, the health and the existence of black-owned banks and uh, in the case of this bank, GN Bank in Chicago, um, federal regulators came in when it started to get into trouble after the housing collapse a few years ago, and they essentially ordered some significant changes there that resulted in a change of ownership uh, to try to keep the bank black-owned. This family from Ghana came in and took it over and has had a real hard time. Depending on who you talk to, they are either um, up to no good and they're taking advantage of uh, customers who um, you know, may not know better or just aren't in a good position to fight back, or they're in over their heads and they're well-intended, they're trying to help the bank, but they just uh, are not, a, they're not connected enough to the community uh, to be able to sort of lift it up. So currently the bank remains under close federal supervision, what's called a consent order, uh, where the, the federal regulators are um, essentially ordering it to, uh, restricting some of the things it can do with its uh, management and banking practices and um, trying to give it a pathway to uh, you know, come back to health and remain open. Um, I think it's going to be very difficult uh, from everything, everyone I've talked to and, and from what I've seen. So the bank currently is holding on. You and I both know people who have accounts there. It's been popular with politicians through the years, um, You know, some of whom have really tried to help the bank, others of whom I suspect have used it uh, as kind of a prop um, because it is um, an important institution in this community uh, historically. Um, and, uh, everyone I think is hoping that it can, uh, this bank can survive, but also, you know, more importantly that, uh, it could represent, uh, what it represents, I think really needs to be addressed, Ben, which is again, disinvestment from these communities. Everything doesn't rest on this one little bank. Um, financially, it should be said, this bank really is not a major player financially, but symbolically, it's incredibly important. And again, we keep making this point. It represents so much else about um, the way politicians, uh, you know, government regulators, uh, people in uh, private, the private sector and business, uh, the practices um, that have left a city like Chicago so segregated by race and class. And so that's why I think it's worth watching to see what happens with this bank. Not that everything pivots on this one institution, but it just touches on so many of these other important issues. Yes, it does. Uh, and uh, so ProPublica Pro uh, is where you can find a mixed story on the bank. Uh, all right. Uh, we have a few minutes left. I got McDunkey here. I'm going to uh, put that big brain of his to use uh, and ask him about a few other issues. And always with McDumkey, you need to know this, folks. He has spent many years writing about criminal justice issues, crime in Chicago, uh, trying to rethink like what it is, like why, what, what should we as a people be doing 
to try to make our city a little safer. Why are the things that we are doing not working? Uh, and make you always try to be dispassionate and rational and logical. Uh, and uh, it just seems to me like the city just isn't really interested uh, in dispassionate, logical um, approaches to this very emotional and gut-wrenching gut issue. Uh, and so as such, I got to get your thoughts on this, this article in today's sometimes I told you about, I, I think I instructed you to read it, uh, by young Tom Shuba, shout out to Tommy, um, mayor Lori Lightfoot haranguing a group of, uh, Chicago, uh, police, what were they commanders? I think it was, uh, about the need to arrest more people and at the same time have more positive community engagement. Make nothing screams mixed message to me more than the combined thing. You want to hug the people uh, in high crime areas and then turn around and arrest the people in high crime areas. <laughs> I believe the city has lost its freaking mind. Mick Dumpke, talk me off the ledge. Uh, try to help me understand the conflicting messages being broadcast uh, by the mayor in this article. Well, I'll talk you off the ledge in the sense of don't do it, Ben, get away from that ledge. But <laughs> I can't, I can't talk you away from uh, your impression that this is um, both mixed messaging and a return, excuse me, <clears throat> a return to some of our old messaging. Um, in fact, some of the very things that I seem to recall Lori Lightfoot suggested that she was, uh, campaigning against when she ran for a mayor a couple years ago. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, this is, this is from the old playbook. Uh, there's so much to unpack here, but let's try to keep it simple. First of all, yes. Yeah, shout out to Tom Shuba, a very compelling piece, um, about that, that really indicates if we get away from the specific policies, it really indicates that the leadership of the city just doesn't have an answer for the current moment. Um, with uh, the crime at levels we haven't seen in more than two decades and uh, the pandemic going on at the same time, you know, obviously uh, leadership at the schools um, is in crisis. And so I think that it just represents that they are they appear overwhelmed and they are having a hard time projecting to the public um, that they have a plan that people can be confident in. I don't blame Lori Lightfoot for the surge in crime, obviously not for the pandemic, um, even for you know the battles over the schools. These are happening in different ways in cities and small towns all over the country. Uh, however, you know, the job of a political leader is to uh, step forward and, you know, not only come up with solutions, but to try to tell the public that solutions are available and that you have them and that you're working on them. And I think that is where uh, Lori has really struggled. Um, definitely over the past year plus, um, well, she's only been in for two years, but uh, she's really struggled with that. And the crime issue is is the one at the forefront, of course, because it's people are scared and it's making national headlines once again. So essentially what, you know, Tom outlined in that story is that uh, she and 
you know, her handpicked chief of police, David Brown, are outlining, if you want to call it a strategy, I don't know if there is a strategy, but they're outlining a set of practices that were in vogue, um, you know, in the 90s and through much of the 2000s, which is, uh, you know, a form of broken windows policing. Um, the truth has been that law enforcement does know how to stop crime, um, you know, not immediately, but in the short term. And that is to, uh, there was a former police superintendent in Chicago, Phil Klein, and I'm paraphrasing him, but he one point in time said, our strategy is going to be able, is going to be to stop everyone who's moving in high crime areas. And that, that is, um, not a direct quote, but that is essentially the strategy. If you are stepping up police interactions with the community, you're arresting people for things large and small. Remember Rudy Giuliani when he was mayor of New York, um, you know, wanted to arrest the uh, uh, people, squeegee operators, the people who were cleaning people, wanted to clean people's windshield for a handful of change at intersections in New York City. It was just a crackdown on all kinds of crime, large and small. And of course, you end up doing the small stuff because that's easier than solving murders and shooting cases. Um, so this is a return. This would signal that they are um, wanting to return to this. Uh, I don't know if it's short-term, long-term. I don't know what kind of thought is behind it, but that's kind of the strategy. If you want to stop the the crime, if you want to stop crime and violence in the short term, you have to flood areas and um, basically bust a lot of people for whatever you can. That's the thinking behind the strategy. The community interaction part of it, you know, this is a game that Chicago and other cities have tried to play for a long time. There has been a lot of research into community policing and a lot of research has found that it actually works, but you have to commit to it. In Chicago, there have, since the, the era of Richard M. Daly in the early 90s, there has always been some kind of community policing initiative officially, but a lot of times it has been uh, window dressing or has just played a background role to uh, the enforcement stuff we just got done talking about. And um, so it remains to be seen whether they're serious about actually making that a priority, talking to people in the community about their problems, helping them solve the problems there, really building trust and relationship, which, by the way, is a key part of the consent decree that the Chicago Police Department remains under. Um, so that in itself uh, would seem to be a smart thing. Uh, but how do you couple that with um, heightened enforcement. I don't know. A lot of people have tried it and usually they end up, um, again, doing more of the enforcement and then kind of throwing in a little bit of community policing, uh, you know, along with it. So I don't know. We'll have to see what, what happens here. Um, but it sure does sound like it's, you know, dusting off something that, um, has been tried many times before. Yeah. And, uh, this is me speaking that Mick. It sounds like utter insanity with just yelling at people in a room. That's what it sounds like to me. Uh, this is Chicago leadership, but it's you know, just yell at, yell at people. Yeah. That took care of that. Uh, that's right. And, and every, everybody keeps track of data. I mean, the fact the story mentioned that they were going to keep track of stuff. I mean that, you know, is that the reader you and I are working together. I mean, we're writing about, um, uh, 
you know, directives were going out under former superintendent Gary McCarthy that police had to issue more tickets. Yeah. And one of my colleagues, Melissa Sanchez at uh, ProPublica, has been writing about, you know, the impacts of increased ticketing. And of course, that happens in the same neighborhoods we got just we just got done talk about that are impacted by, you know, disparate banking services and everything else. Um, so, uh, you know, that seems to be a throwback as well. Um, but I, I'm, yeah, it's, it's troubling on the face of it, but it's also very frustrating because it just doesn't seem like they have any other answers. No. And by the way, when you mentioned, um, uh, building trust, uh, and relationships, I just like to urge everybody to check out the interview I did with uh, Joshua Teffer, uh, lawyer about Ronald Watts case. One of the most troubling and disturbing I hadn't really followed that case, Mick, other than seeing occasional stories, uh, and Teffer took it from A to Z. It is one of the most troubling and disturbing uh, stories that I've encountered in a while. I mean, I'm a cynical, jaded old guy, but I'm like, even I'm outraged all over again. And how can you build trust and relationships where, in a community where you had this rogue cop? And I know, Mick, you, you, you know about it, but to just say for the, some of our listeners who may have missed the interview, who was like planning evidence on residents in the Ida B. Wells uh, community and getting them thrown in jail. And we're now just sort of sifting through cases that were just manufactured. People who spent time, never did anything, but uh, run afoul of this cop. The, the, the city of Chicago has not even really officially recognized uh, the damage that this cop caused. And some of his comrades are still on the force. It's just, it. it's always, Mick, it just seems to be like trying to keep up with the headlines at the moment. You know what I'm saying? Come up with a strategy yeah. that'll pacify uh, the current political need and uh, then move on, not really think about like 10 years down the road. Well, I think they do have to address the current moment. I mean, they do. Um, you know, people would like to be reassured. They would like to know there is some kind of a plan. Uh, but you know, we'd also like to know that it's a plan that has been thought out and has some chance of success. And so when you're talking about dusting something else off that uh, may have worked in short bursts before, but in the long and the short of it ended up with situations like the Watts uh, fiasco, um, worse than a fiasco, disaster, uh, then yeah, I think that's it's really problematic and that's kind of where we are. So I share, I share your concern. It's, it's really, um, it's really a problem. All right. And, uh, so a little irony here, I mentioned, I was going to say this, so I might as well follow through, uh, Arnie Duncan, former, uh, head of Chicago public schools, education secretary, uh, announced or revealed, uh, today. I, I don't know where or how he did it, uh, that he was considering running for mayor, uh, and, uh, I think this was like, a, uh, like the worst kept secret in the world. Uh, he wrote an essay. Was it for the Tribune? I think it was the Tribune. Um, I think it was the trip, yeah. Or, or his name went on an essay, uh, that was in the Tribune. Um, I suspect that Peter Cunningham wrote it. What's up PC? Uh, anyway, uh, and in the essay, I just, I had a laugh, uh, and Mick knows what's coming. He very correctly, I feel pointed out, uh, just some of the, uh, inconsistencies of our uh, policing efforts and the great, like the emphasis in the particular on uh, uh, cracking down on illegal guns in the city uh, and how that's not 
really a deterrent uh, to crime. And yet we keep emphasizing that as like a significant victory. And ladies and gentlemen, Mick Dumkey was saying this 15 years ago, okay? 15 years ago, when Arnie Duncan was working for Richie Daly as the head of the public schools, Mick Dumkey was writing articles in the reader saying this very thing. And when he confronted uh, Mayor Richard M. Daly, who was Arnie Duncan's boss, with a question sort of in general related to the failures of the city's uh, anti-gun ordinance, Mayor Daly got so mad, he threatened to take a gun and shoot McDumkey. I think shoot you in the buttocks, I believe. Uh, it's Well, he, he yeah, he technically threatened to put the gun up my butt and then shoot me. So to get, not, not to uh, get crude here, but that's what the man said. Uh, so... Yeah, and so Mick, you had moment. to have some yeah. astounding moment in your yeah. life as a journalist and as a human being that the mayor of the city of Chicago threatened to kill you uh, by sticking a gun up your butt. But I mean, while we come were discussing on, the city's gun policies, while yes. we were talking about how bad, while he was talking about how bad it was that Chicago had so many guns. Yeah, I know. And yes, it's beyond ironic. I mean, it's everything about it is insane. Yeah. So here comes Artie Duncan. And he sounds like Mick Dumkey from the year 2007 or 2006 or whatever that was. Come on, Mick, you got to appreciate, I don't know. I don't know if irony is the correct word, but uh, <laughs> you have to appreciate this moment. Yeah, it's, um, well, I I appreciate it as a storyline. Um, as you and I often discuss, sometimes you have to just sit back and kind of relish the story and relish the characters involved in the story because the actual policies or outcomes are maddening or dispiriting or worse. Um, but in this case, yeah, I mean, I, I, I read that piece as well, Ben, and was struck by, that was the thing I remember the most about it was Arnie Duncan basically saying that the police um, put too much of an emphasis rhetorically and otherwise on how many guns they're seizing on the street uh, when the real problem is that they basically can't solve violent crimes. Um, shootings and murders are going unsolved. And so that in turn is fueling street justice, which is what most of the violence is about these days, according to Arnie Duncan and other people I've spoken with. So it's not you know, necessarily about drug turf or some of the gang boundaries of years past. Although I think some of that probably still does happen. Um, but a lot of it is retaliatory in nature. And, um, and, and as you know, I also wrote about it, the reader, other people have written too. There's just sort of at this point in time, there's developed a culture of, uh, gun ownership and retaliation and people in some areas just don't feel safe without a gun. If they can't get one through legal means, uh, they don't qualify or don't, uh, you know, think that they have the the ability to get one through sort of the formal official licensing process. Then people get them through the black market, and you know, I have to say that for a lot of individuals, that's probably a rational choice. It's not a choice that uh, makes the community better necessarily, but as an individual choice for people who feel unsafe in neighborhoods with high levels of gun violence. Um, 
you know, their inclination is to protect themselves. And I think that is a very human uh, response to what's going on. So, you know, Duncan's point, which I um, think makes a lot of sense, is that our solutions have to uh, not punish people for making that rational choice, but make it so that they can have other choices available to them. Make it so that the neighborhoods are safer. Make it so that you know, people are willing to cooperate with law enforcement to solve crimes rather than feeling like they have to take care of it themselves in these cycles of retaliation. Um, I, I thought it made a lot of sense. Now, that doesn't mean that he's mayoral material. That remains to be seen. But uh, I thought it was I thought it was a pretty compelling piece that he uh, put into the trib, especially that part of it um, last weekend. I agree. And uh, I will give a, a legitimate shout out to uh, our old friend, Pete Cunningham, who's come on the show many times and said many of the same things. Uh, he's an ally of Arnie Duncan, used to work for him. And so uh, I, I'm hoping uh, that some of these notions uh, find their way into uh, policing strategies. And uh, we finally take really a serious approach to the culture of retaliation. And this is another great McDumkey story from the reader days. Uh, Mick, I remember you laboring on this article for months. I think you almost lost your mind working on it. Uh, and a mind is a terrible thing to lose. Uh, but it was, uh, <laughs> to quote Dan Quayle. Uh, anyway. Some, thing, um, some things don't change either. I uh, almost <laughs> lose my, lost my mind in this last story too. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Some things don't change. When we did our collaborations, uh, I think having me around uh, helped Mick from losing his mind to a certain degree. Um, they did. But, we, we at least had some uh, some gallows humor at different points, whether it was about <laughs> the editing process at the reader or the um, often uh, difficult subject matter we were dealing with. At the very least, we could <laughs> we could start laughing about something and uh, appreciate it. So, oh my God, the editing process at the reader. Let's just not go down that path. Um, <laughs> in the old days, I should say anyway, uh, but the culture of retaliation is so deeply embedded in Chicago, Mick. And I make this point with you all the time. It's not just, uh, black guys in a street corner in the West side or the South side. It's just like a citywide culture of retaliation. Someone says something to you, you feel compelled to come back with a fist, you know, and I see it in politics. We kind of laugh at it in politics. Uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, just the other day at a press conference, she the reporter it was like a mini Richard M. Daly moment. She didn't like the question the reporter asked. I don't know if you saw this. So she goes, "Well, you never come to these press conferences." I mean, answer the freaking question, you know? You know, <laughs> as you if to, that matters. Yeah, yeah. Like if it matters, uh, it, if the, the guy, whoever had a legitimate question. Uh, but it's deep, Mick, in this city. You know what I'm saying? It's just... Yeah, it is. And I think the city, again, is an example of how it works um, elsewhere around our country, probably beyond. It's probably a human thing, but you're definitely right. Um, you know, the same thing was happening when, uh, you know, there were uh, white ethnic guys who controlled the black markets in a lot of these same neighborhoods, which is uh, an ongoing research interest of mine, uh, the same things were happening in terms of the retaliation. And as you and I both know, and have spent a lot of time writing and talking about, uh, a lot of the retaliation that happens around here happens in the political arena, um, and in the business arena. So, uh, absolutely it's, it's in the blood here as it were, but, um, 
man, this is something we got to deal with. We just got to address and we got to do it smartly. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, it's a, it's a pivotal moment for the city. It really is. It really is. And that's as good as uh, any to lead the conversation from the moment. It is an absolutely, uh, pivotal moment for Chicago. And it's that much harder make in the middle of a pandemic. And I cannot, your point is well taken. I do not in any way blame Mayor Lori Lightfoot or even Mayor Rahm Emanuel, okay? Or Richard M. Daly. I've harangued all these mayors for the pandemic. Just want to get that clear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing we'll let them off the hook for. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm with Mick on that one 100%. Mayor Lori Lightfoot, it's not your fault. We're in the middle of a pandemic, but things are a lot harder to do, Mick, in the middle of a pandemic. Let's just that uh, is for sure. recognize that point. All right. It's a blast talking to you as always, Mick. I'm so glad you got that microphone. I'm going to make you put it to good use. Have you come back? Uh, maybe we'll do Let's a whole Let's do it thing. again soon. Yeah. Do it again yeah, soon. Thanks. I'll I appreciate coming on, Ben. Always a blast. I agree. And um, again soon. Very good. Well, and we'll talk next time. Maybe talk about... Uh, it turns out we share a love for the Bulls. People may not know this about Mick Dumkey. He has become a diehard Bulls fan. Uh, watches pretty much ever. I pretty much count on you, Mick, to watch. Like you saw both the Rosen shots uh, <laughs> over the weekend. You know, so uh, I, I, I am available to for, for texting. Uh, you know, <laughs> in triumph or in pain after every Bulls game. It is true. And the other thing, Ben, that I'm even. Uh, that that is totally fine. I think that's all justifiable. But the thing I'm slightly ashamed of is my ongoing love for Big Ten basketball and especially <laughs> Northwestern basketball, which once again I watched them collapse last night, blow a yeah. late ten point lead, and I'm just like, why do I do this? But I, I can't give it up. I'm I, I I just I love all the sports as you do, Ben. But I'm just like I'm just like basketball crazy. Um, so. Wait, who'd they it's lose to last? I, I remember the Michigan State blowing the Michigan State. Who'd they lose to last night? I wasn't even aware of Penn last State, night. Last night. Oh, they Penn lost State. to Penn State? Oh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> well, Penn State, I think Penn State is not a terrible team, but it was a game they should have won at home, yeah. and they had it in hand. They were up 10 with 10 minutes uh, to go, and they just <laughs> they blew it. So what can uh, you say? Mercifully, I was yeah, unaware yeah, yeah. of that. Uh, all right, that's the great Mick Dumpke from ProPublica. Uh, I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Mm -hmm.